I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, historical theologian Carl Truman begins with this illustration, and he observes that that phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been absolutely incomprehensible 60 years ago to his grandfather. And yet today, that phrase has become normal, rational, politically protected. We organize our identities, our bathrooms, athletics, around that basic idea. We're dedicating a month in the United States to, to celebrating it and the whole worldview behind it. So what happened? How did we move from 60 years ago and what would have been just incomprehensible to our grandparents and what just seems normal and acceptable today? Why such a quick, dramatic shift? Well, in fact, that shift has not been quick or dramatic at all, Truman argues in his book. Both in the longer book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, as well as the shorter book, Strange New World, which I would commend to you, especially for the teen in the room. He tells a several hundred year story that provides the backdrop of what feels like this recent modern shift I'm going to explain that backdrop. I'm, I'm going to get philosophical for just a minute. Kids, I'm going to use some big terms, but teens especially, I'm doing this for you. Teens and maybe outsiders who are visiting with us. I want you to pretend for a moment we're in a great ideas high school class just so we can understand this world that we live in that we might take for granted just like a, a fish takes the water for granted. These are the waters we're swimming in. So I want to stare at that water for just a moment so that if need be, we can swim upstream, not just float on downstream. Uh, Truman offers four basic steps in this evolution of how we have come to view ourselves in a way that that phrase makes sense to us. Step one, he calls it the psychologized Self. And this takes us back to the 1700s with characters like Rousseau. Rousseau said that the natural human being is good. And it's civilization and culture which corrupts us. So what we need to do is cast off these elements of civilization and culture and look down to the self, the inner self, to find what is good and shape morality around what you find on the inside. Step two, the plastic self. Think plastic, like stretchable, bendable. This takes us into the 1800s with names like Friedrich Nietzsche and Karl Marx and Charles Darwin, each of which in their own way taught that the self can be shaped, evolved, reshaped. Step three, the sexual self. 
if Rousseau psychologized the self, Sigmund Freud, moving into the 1900s, sexualized psychology. Not only did he equate happiness with sexual pleasure, he tied that to our very identities. So in centuries past, people surely pursued same-sex activity, but they didn't think in terms of identity structures. They wouldn't have said, oh, he is a heterosexual. She is a homosexual. They didn't think in terms of those labels, since at least Freud, we do. That is who you are. You must come to terms with that. The fact that you have those desires means that's who you are, and people around you need to come to terms with the fact that that is your identity. That is who you are. Step four, the sexually politicized self. So if Rousseau psychologized the self and Freud sexualized psychology, moving into the middle of the 20th century, the school of writers known as critical theorists began to politicize sexuality. Sex is no longer a private activity. It's now a public and political identity. Therefore, it is the government's job to protect it and protect those identities. And what that means, friends, is by the time we arrive at the sexual revolution of the 1960s, all the worldview pieces were in place to reach our own transgender moment, to reach gay pride month. All that was left was helping people get used to these ideas of homosexuality and transgenderism. So in 1990, the book, After Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fears and Hatred of Gays, advised the gay community that to gain acceptance, they would need to present a more respectable, friendly, fun, good-looking image. And that's precisely what I remember watching growing up in the 90s and 2000s as more and more sitcoms like Will and Grace tried to normalize these things. Meanwhile, other books to encourage the gay community to adopt the language of civil rights. Look, it's been successful for minorities. We need to adopt that same language. Except let's not just accept, let's affirm and celebrate. And that co-opting of that civil rights language into the gay rights movement has proven hugely successful, even more successful by many standards than it has been for minorities. Our email signatures show as much as people declare their pronouns. Okay, friends, teenagers, that's the water we live in. That's, that's, that's what we are swimming in. The self has been psychologized. You are what you feel. Psychology has been sexualized. You are what you sexually desire. And sex has been politicized. Governments exist to uphold and enforce those sexual identities. And that is how a phrase like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, both makes sense to us and gains our political sympathies. Our identities are not created by God in this particular story. They're created by ourselves, and we know who we are by looking deep down 
inside, even if what is deep down inside goes against our very reproductive organs that God has given us. Now, teens and adults, what does that that mean for you specifically? Well, it means you are going to feel completely natural, even necessary, it's going to feel natural, even necessary for you to define yourself and define who you are based on what you are feeling inside. And anyone who tells you to deny your feelings is telling you to deny the authentic or real you. They are even doing violence to you. It means you will be tempted to consider the claims of Christianity or any other religion by whether or not it affirms your basic sense of self. It means that even if you call yourself a Christian, you will be inclined to adopt a more therapeutic version of the gospel. A gospel that makes you feel good and whole. A Jesus who comes not so much to forgive your sins, but to heal your inner psychic aches. It means you will look for a church with a consumeristic mindset. Will, will this church affirm me and how I feel? Do, do I like its style? It means you will look for your friends who are just like you, who don't correct you, who affirm what you're feeling. It means you will be tempted to evaluate your parents by whether or not they devote themselves to helping you discover yourself, express yourself, chase whatever dreams might be hidden in your heart. It means mental health will become one of your uppermost concerns. The, the, the trouble is, you'll view every challenge in life as harmful to your mental health. It means that if your sexual desires move in some other direction than what people call heteronormative, you will feel as if the affirmation of your very person and humanity depends upon the satisfying of those desires from your and you, you will begin to wrap your whole identity and life around the fulfilling of those desires, from your dress to your politics to your friend groups, everything. You will feel a moral obligation, as if you are a bad or unloving person, if you do not affirm friends and family members who move in this direction. And along the way, in all of this, you will be tempted to adopt a new public or political religion of neo-paganism, which worships the body and its desires above all things, using the power of the state and the market to both promote and enforce that religion. In other words, Aphrodite is back, and Aphrodite is back to do business. Now, I offer, friends, this unusually long sermon introduction because it is the backdrop against which I want to set Ephesians 2. The good news is I'm going to try to balance out the the long sermon introduction with, with a long exposition. As I said, this is the water we swim in, and Ephesians 2 challenges this view of the self and this view of us. We. It offers a different story of who we are. It offers a different me, a different we. So 
Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 2. And as you listen, friends, you will have to decide, do I want my version of reality, which places my version of me and my version of we at the center of all things, or do I want the Bible's version, which places God and his definitions and his boundaries at the center? Uh, you'll notice structurally Ephesians 2 features two basic comparisons of what you were as a non-Christian and what you are as a Christian. Look at verse 1. You were dead, it says. Now look at verse 4, the first of two significant buts there. But God, verse 5, made us alive. Verse 6, raised us up. You were dead. God made you alive. Raised you up. Now look at verse 12. Remember that you were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope. Look at verse 13. We get the second significant change of direction, the second significant but. But now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. Okay, so that first comparison gives us a, a vertical reconciliation. We're raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. And then the second one gives us a horizontal. We who are far off have been brought near. And the two are necessarily together. The first necessarily brings the second. A new me, a new we, is what Ephesians 2 offers. Let me unpack this over five lessons. Lesson one, you were you were dead. Look at verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. The expressive individualism that began with Rousseau says that the main problem with the world begins entirely outside of us. Culture, civilization, structures, harm that comes, parents, false consciousness. These things harm us, victimize us, oppress us. These verses offer a more complicated picture. It doesn't actually start with something outside of us. It starts with something inside of us. Look there in verse 1, our trespasses and sin, the, the way we choose to walk. Now it's true, outside forces are also to blame. Verse 2, follower, it refers to following in the course of this world. Uh, which is to say, if you grow up in a racist or sexist or idolatrous or pagan or Muslim or Hindu or secular society, you too most likely will be these things. You will follow in that way. Culture shapes us clearly. Yet, the Bible doesn't absolve us of responsibility, does it? It affirms each one of us as possessing agency. We choose to follow. It shapes us we choose to go. 
clearly a both and here. We have, look at, look at verse 3, we have lived in the passions of the flesh. We have, it says, carried out the desires of our body and mind. We've all been like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember what it says of Eve when she saw the tree that the fruit was good for eating and delightful to her eyes? She saw what was delightful and she grabbed it. And so do we. It's also predictable in a way. We see what's delightful and then we shape our very identities around pursuing what is delightful. Expressive individualism, identity politics, the story that Carl Truman tells really finally is nothing new. Our internal desires and our external world and forces conspire together. Uh, think, of, think of sexual desire, whether, whether gay or straight. There's a desire, and then there is a culture that wants to reinforce that desire by telling you that you should give yourself over to those things without reservation because that is who you are. That is natural. Why would you deny what is you? And your desire says, yes, that's exactly right. Therefore, I'm going to follow in the course of the world. I'm a man. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, says one. I'm gay, says another. I, I can leave my wife for that other woman, says still another. Be true to yourself, says the world. Yes and amen, say we. And Paul's indictment, the Lord's indictment in all of this, is that you are dead. Do you see that in verse 1? You see the word dead? That's a strong word, isn't it? You were dead in the trespasses and sins, meaning our desires necessarily lead to death, and our desires necessarily lead to God's judgment, and in God's condemnations we do not desire God. And then look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, it says. That is a radically different view of the self than is on offer today. And notice the indictment is not just against the LGBTQ. We're not just picking on that. It's not on sexual immorality in general. It's on all of us, like the rest of mankind. And notice the word nature there. We were by nature. What's my DNA, as it were? By nature, children of wrath. What's natural to me? What's deep down inside of me? The true me, the authentic me. By nature, children of wrath. Friends, the Bible makes very strong claims against the water that we live in. We're children of wrath because we've given ourselves over to following the world, because we've, we've listened to the serpent in the garden and the, 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 the allusion there to the prince of the power of the air. It's, it's the world. 
It's the devil, but of course, finally, it's our own flesh. All three working together to get us to oppose God. And by nature, therefore, we follow, and we are children of wrath, giving ourselves to the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and mind, it's said. Here, here's the thing about dead people. They don't know they're dead. I remember talking years and years ago to uh, uh, an older woman named Margaret, and Margaret was miserable in her life, and uh, we, we, we worked together. And she would tell me how miserable she was, and she would cry and cry about how miserable her life was in so many ways, for so many reasons, and many bad things had happened to Margaret. And yet, as I would try to talk to her about the gospel, she was insistent only on finally blaming God. I'm like, Margaret, you, you, you're clutching, refusing to let go. You're miserable. Why don't you let go? Look to Christ. But she wouldn't have it. So there she was in her misery at the bottom of the barrel in some sense and still even there at the very bottom like the prodigal son in the pigsty saying, no, I won't listen. Margaret, I fear, was dead in her trespasses and sins like all of us apart from Christ. A friend, if, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, first, we're grateful you're here. to challenge you a little bit. How do you know your perception of yourself is the right perception? Just think about that some. Gratefully, Ephesians 2 doesn't end here. There's another lesson, lesson two. God made us alive. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show thee immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, members of Chevrolet Baptist Church, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We have been drawn out of the grave. We have been lifted up. We have been seated in the heavenlies with God in Christ. What does that mean? It means we're given standing. We're given recognition. We're given status there. Our names are there. All the power and the prerogatives and glories of there belong to us. We are inheritors. We are heirs of there. 
and the king's status there. Nietzsche said life's all about power. That's true. But he denied the very one with all power, which is God. And we are seated. The, the, the one who is seated is the one who has power. The king sits and we all stand as we attend him. But what, we're seated with him. Meaning all that's his is ours. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this is what's been given to us in Christ. Tim Keller once said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Does the deep down inner you have that kind of access? Or has God given you that kind of access out of pure mercy and grace? And then I love verse 7. The why. Why did God make you alive and seat you in the heavens? Why did he do that? Verse 7. So that later he can show us even more of his riches and grace. It's like God is saying, okay, I'm going to give you a bike, a bicycle. Well, why? So that later I can give you a car. I'm going to give you $100. Well, why? So that later I can give you 1000 that's, that's the logic going on. He, he's raised us up, seated us with him, so that later he can show us even more. It's divine generosity. I'm giving you some now, so I can give you more later. That's how good and generous and loving I am. That's how much I love you. What do you have now in Christ? You'll have even more later. More is coming. We opposed him. Yet he pulls out his wallet and all the bills inside are mercy and love. He's rich with mercy, it says. In the face of our transgression, friends, he paid the bill and he promises more later. And why does he do this? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Not small love, not medium love, not some love. Great love. The great love with which he loved us. Infinite love for you, for me. Look at verses 8 and 9. He does this not because of any merit of our own. We have nothing to boast about. Expressive individualism, to go back to that story from earlier, is all about boasting. It's a story of boasting. It's about looking inside in order to validate, to affirm, to find worth in, to prove who we are based on what we see inside. It is. Expressive individualism is a story of justification. How can, I be ju how can I prove to you that I am justified? I'm something. I'm worth something. You need to respect me. It's all about justification. Trouble is we can't find anything solid and lasting on by which we can boast in ourselves. And so... Rates of depression and prescription for antidepressants have skyrocketed in the last 20 years, especially for women, especially for Generation Z. It's both ironic and tragic. 
generation raised on Disney princess movies. I tell you, it's all about discovering and living out the inner you. I don't care if you're a mermaid, you, you can walk on land. You really want to. Is the most depressed and fragile generation ever. We want to find our identity and we want to boast in something on the inside, but nothing on the inside can carry that weight. What does God offer? He offers a gift. Verse 8, the gift. A gift gives me nothing to boast about. A gift is a gift. It, it, it comes from the outside. And, and the message of the Bible from first to last is that any good which you and I possess, friends, anything we think we might have to boast about, anything that we think makes us worthy or righteous, is a gift. To a generation that says, no, me, the things inside of me are mine and they're good and you must respect them. This idea of a gift is surprisingly offensive. Because I'm, I'm looking to be validated by what's on the inside. And you're saying, no, you got nothing on the inside. You got to take this gift. Well, I don't, that doesn't make me feel good about myself. But, but no, it's a gift. I don't know if I want that. That's what we're offered though. I heard one theologian say, the world tells us the biggest problems we face are on the outside of our persons while the solution's on the inside. Christianity says the biggest problems are on the inside while the solution comes from the outside. A little oversimplistic, but you understand what it's getting at. Our salvation is a gift. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're, you're, you're a Christian because you realize that you've come to the end of yourself. You've accepted that gift. And if you're here as a non-Christian today, Oh, friends, we got a gift for you. The Lord is a gift for you. I want you to have it. Not only that, look at verse 10. We are his workmanship. So Paul comes along and he responds to this whole story of self-creation that the world wants to tell us and says, no, you, you're not self-created. You're not self-defining. You're just, you're following one another. You're following the prince of the power of the air. Those are your choices. You can be, Others, def others define you, others' workmanship, or God define, God's workmanship. I remember in, in high school in the 80s, noticing that, I, I listened to some punk rock music like The Clash, but I remember, I remember noticing, why, why is it all the punk rockers, the rebels, all look the same? Doc Martens, holy jeans, black biker leather jackets, parts of their... Head shaved, they all look the same. You, you, you see one, you know what kind of music they listen to. You know how they talk. You know what kind of attitude, it's just there's pure conformity. And that's true of all people. Either the world and the devil are defining you, or God is. It's one or the other. You are not friends. We are not self-defining. And when God defines us, he writes a, to dig into the Greek, he, he, he writes a, a glorious poema, a poem. He drafts a remarkable play. He narrates a sensational story through your life, through my life. Friends, what we're reading about in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is the story of conversion. 
And just, just stop for a moment and consider the beauty and the glory of conversion. Conversion is resurrection. Conversion is the death of death. It's the beginning of real, substantial life. It's a picture of Jesus reaching down and touching the dead girl and saying, little girl, I say to you, rise. It's Jesus at Lazarus' tomb saying, come out. Flower blooming, the egg hatching, the butterfly taking flight. Conversion is new creation. It is a picture of God creating something out of nothing, just as he created stars and solar systems with a word. So we are born again to a new creation through a word. Faith comes from hearing. Conversion is the beginning of the end of sin, of selfishness, of pride, of lust, of oppression. Conversion is freedom. Freedom from being enslaved to your idols and addictions. Freedom from fearing what other people think of you all the time. Freedom from being utterly fixed on me. Conversion is discovering for the first time what love really is. Being loved, giving loved. You're no longer trying to fight to defend yourself and your passions. You have been born again into a world of Love, loving God, loving neighbor, knowing that loved in the fellowship of his church. The good works you do are works of loved. Friend, if you are here and you are not a follower of Christ, I want you to know, as I said a moment ago, the power and the beauty of conversion, of being born again. As offensive as that might sound to you at first blush, being born again doesn't mean you believe what God created you to be. It means you're free from the condemnation of God for your sin as well as the enslaving nature of your sin so that you are now free to be those things God created you to be. It's like one of those movies where the guy takes the drug and whereas before he can only use 15% of his brain, now he can use like 95% of his brain and he's like a super math whiz now and he's almost superhuman. You know, you know the kind of movies I'm talking about? Conversion frees you up, not with a drug, but by saying, this is your Lord and maker. He loves you. Follow after him. And you realize, ah, this is what I was created to be. Now, we who are members of this church don't do that perfectly. You've seen us probably. But we're learning to little by little, and we, we want to invite you to join us in that. Love to stay here longer, meditate on these things further. Let me press on. Lesson three. You were dead, you were raised up. But now we have a second comparison. You were separated. You were separated. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is to say, Gentile versus Jew, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so in this chapter, clearly Paul has both Jews and Gentiles in mind. And that, that, that was a division that was ordained by God. So in that sense, it's different than other, other kinds of divisions, human divisions we know. This one was ordained by God. 
not since it was unique. But on the other hand, insofar as sinners were involved and insofar as the story of Israel played itself out, it was demonstrated that uh, this division is just like every other division. You see that with the word hostility in verse 14. Which is to say the division between Jews and Gentiles applies more broadly. Children fight. Spouses quarrel. Companies try to put each other out of business. Tribes and nations go to war. The strong oppress the weak. The rich exploit the poor. The majority takes advantage of the minority. Step into my kitchen on a school morning. Everyone rushing to get lunches and breakfast prepared. Each jostling for turf. You're in my way. You've probably heard the phrase identity politics. Back to the story of expressive individualism, one outcome of that story is that people go looking for identity by belonging to certain groups. And all our politics and struggles for power, says identity politics, are driven by our group memberships. There's a battle between blacks and whites, men and women, conservatives and liberals, and of course, identity politics in that regard is no new thing. The older word for it is tribalism. It's been around at least since the Tower of Babel, every time two or more tribes go to war. The insight of identity politics is that the war between groups and tribes centers on this question of identity and the need to maintain and defend my identity, which is given to me by my group. As I said a moment ago, finally, it's a story about justification. I feel justified. I feel good about myself because I belong to this group, not that group. Indeed, that is the history of competing nationalisms, competing ethnicities, competing religions, competing politics. I'm Japanese, not Korean. I'm Hutu, not Tutsi. I'm Hindu, not Muslim. I'm German, not French. I'm conservative, not liberal. One thing the identity politicians and the critical theorists all get wrong is that while history certainly does play out a battle of competing groups and the stronger group oppressing the weaker group, it turns out that every single time the weaker group gets the upper hand, it in turn oppresses its former oppressors. It always works that way. So merely recognize, ah, we have a history of oppression, doesn't fix the problem. It just allows one group to, in turn, press the other. That is history. After all, ultimately, the hostility between human beings root not in our group membership, but in our separation and hostility toward God. And the fact that we do not seek our justification in him. If we try to find our justification in group identity, we're not finding it in him. And so we go to war. What's the solution? Find it in him. Not your group identity. The hostility we have towards one another is finally theological. Always theological. What's the solution, therefore, to identity politics? What's the only thing that will keep us from going to war and oppressing one another? Gratefully, lesson four follows lesson three. Number four, Christ brought you near. Look at verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. I think I became a Christian in my early to mid-twenties, and one side of the fact that I became a Christian is that my posture changed toward Christians. In college, I did not like them. I was embarrassed by them. I did not want to be around them. After conversion, that changed. I wanted to be around the saints. I found these new desires and impulses in me to love the saints. And the basis of that love, that affection, wasn't things that we had in common. It was Christ. Christ himself was our peace. And so it showed up in an unexpected way. I I was 23, 24, living in D.C., working, and I, I remember the older couple, Helen and Hardin Young, members of, of the church in their 80s. They'd invite me over for dinner, kind of to rake their leaves. But I would do it. I would rake the leaves, I'd get the dinner, and then I would just stay for hours talking to them, hearing their story, hearing what God had done in their lives. Why is a single man in his 20s in Washington, D.C., hanging out with a, a, a couple in the suburbs in their 80s? Because we shared Christ in common. Here's what's striking to me about these verses. They describe Christian unity in the past tense. Did you notice that? We were far off. We have been brought near. He made us both one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Why past tense? Because it's done. When was it done? It was done at the cross. At the cross, while being united to him, we were thereby necessarily, simultaneously, derivatively, but necessarily and simultaneously united to everyone else. United to him at the cross. Think about this, what, means, what, what this means for your doctrine of conversion. Conversion is not just individual. Conversion is also corporate. Mom and dad go down to the orphanage. They adopt you. They bring you home. You look around the room. What do you got? You got new brothers and sisters. Conversion signs you up for a family photograph. Conversion makes the me into a we. It gives us a new group, a new people, the people of God, which is to say, friend, don't tell me you're a Christian if you want nothing to do with God's people, his church, his bride, your brothers and sisters. Don't tell me you're a family man if you never come to the dinner table. You're not a family man. And not only that, our friendships inside the church should increasingly be boundary-crossing, like the circumcised beginning to eat with the uncircumcised, which at one point Peter wouldn't do, and Paul rebukes him. Jew with the Gentile. So, friends, do, do, do we go out of our way to befriend brothers and sisters in this congregation who are different ages than us, different ethnicities or nationalities than us, different economic groups, things they might want to talk about than us? Let's just be honest, we're, we're, we're a majority white in a majority American 
church. Among other things, that means to some extent we establish a cultural baseline. White Americans establish a cultural baseline for everything from the style of the music to the kind of the vibe of the conversations. Step into a black church and you feel those differences. Step into a Chinese church, you feel those differences. Now those differences aren't bad. The personality of a congregation is not bad. Just, just be aware of it. And if you belong to that majority, be aware of it. And recognize you have a special obligation to show hospitality to those who don't belong to that cultural vibe. Look at verse 14. He is our peace. Verse 16, he killed the hostility. I assume, brothers and sisters, and I've seen it in you, to some extent you possess different cultural preferences, different political instincts, even to some extent different values, but he is our peace. We work, practice sharing peace with him. Going through the last elections, your elders were amazed by how much peace uh, you lived out amidst things that often would divide the world. We praise God for that. We pray for more of that. What's particularly tragic, to explore another application of these verses, is when Christians try to purchase peace with the culture by rejecting aspects of God's law in matters of sexuality and moving to an affirming position. We should know better. We, we find peace through Jesus. Should think about this. When, when churches accommodate the LGBTQ agenda, they work directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ. How, how, how is that? How does that happen? Let me explain. Right now, the world is very clearly saying there's a law and you must conform to that law. There, there's a law. Celebrate and accept LGBTQ, and you must conform to it. And there's a line in the sand, and that line in the sand separates two groups, an in-group and an out-group, the good guys and the bad guys, the, the loving and tolerant and the hateful and bigoted. And if you want to be in the right group, you have to, if you want to know salvation, you have to keep this law. It is a new kind of legalism. So what is the church or the individual which capitulates to this demand doing? Well, it is capitulating to a new legalism. It's looking for peace and salvation by keeping a law, and a law created by the world, and a world in opposition to God. It's not looking for peace with God and peace with one another in Christ, who is our peace, says Paul. It's looking for peace by keeping the world's law. Friends, where will we find peace? Where do you think your non-Christian friends will find peace? Only in the one who died on the cross, through the cross, it says, making peace through his blood. What a, and what a beautiful peace he's created. Look at verse 19 and following in our final lesson. Lesson five, we together are the temple of God's spirit. We together are the temple of God's spirit. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. To imagine for a moment, you're sitting on a edge of a cloud with God, and you're looking down at the world, looking down at creation. And you're, you're seeing all the division, the rancor, the war and strife, and, and God leans over to you, and he says, you know why there's so much fighting and strife, don't you? And you reply, well, it's, it's because people don't like each other, because each has something the other wants, or because everyone wants to prove he's better than others. And God replies, well, that's all true. Well, those are just the symptoms. The root cause? They reject me, my word, my holiness, my love. And if they would first be reconciled to me, then they would be reconciled to each other. You then ask God, so are you going to save them? Reconcile them to you and to each other. And he replies, yes, I'm going to reconcile them to myself. And in so doing, I'm going to reconcile them to each other. And you say, great. We're going to have peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And he says, yes, but gradually, little by little. What will that look like? You ask. And he says, I'm going to send my son. My son will live the perfect, obedient, and loving, and peace-filled life. He's going to die on the cross, purchasing that peace between you and me and all people through his death and his resurrection. Then he will rise. He'll begin a new movement, you might say, or really it's a whole new creation, a new way of Living And my plan, says the Lord, is to gather followers of this new way into little embassies or outposts of light and peace. They'll be like my temple was in the Old Testament, representing my presence on earth, demonstrating my love and righteousness and peace and how they live with one another and follow me. And I'm going to scatter them out on the map like little pins on a map. A reconciled humanity. And then peek with me in chapter 3, verse 10. God says, I'm going to get my glory through them. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I love that phrase from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address where he spoke of achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace for ourselves and with all nations. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations. Friends, where will that just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations begin? begins in those little pins on the map, those little outposts and embassies of light. It begins in our church and in other churches that we pray for every Sunday. Chevrolet Baptist is an outpost of God's kingdom, an embassy of heavenly light. It's here the, the citizens of Prince George's County and 
the Washington, D.C. area should be able to look and see what they too were created for, reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. And looking down from that cloud with God, I think you'd be able to see many points of such light in this area and increasingly around the world. Right now, my daughter Emma is traveling around the ancient ruins of Italy and Greece with her school class. And notice I said ancient ruins. Empires come, empires go. Pride Month, too, and all it represents about this American moment will come and go. The present power structures will not remain. One thing will endure, friends, and that is the church. These embassies. Writing to a younger pastor, an older pastor once wrote, Always remember that what endures after very various movements come and go is the local church. At this stage in your life and ministry, do not worry too much about what is happening at the national level. Simply build the people to whom God has called you. Feed people the word of God. Pray for them. Love them. Convey the reality of God's presence to them by word and deed. What is important at that day, at the end of the day, is the church. Ordinary churches trying to live faithfully in a rapidly changing society. Ordinary churches pastored by ordinary people like you and me, knowing that we cannot do everything, but trying to do what we can and seeking God's face for his presence and blessing so that his dear son might be honored and his people strengthened. In other words, friends, if you're afraid of Pride Month and all that it represents, or you're afraid of the people of the work, or you're afraid of the cultural forces at large, or you're afraid of nations and empires, you're giving all of these things too much credit. Even more powerful is the testimony of the fact that you were dead. Dead. Not breathing. Not drowning, but drowned. And God made you alive together with the brothers and sisters in here in Christ. And he will be victorious. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we give you thank and, thanks and praise for who you are and what you have done in our lives. You have given us a better story than the story this world offers. A story in which you are at the center and not we at the center, not me. Lord, help us to follow you today. In Christ's name, amen.